Hello, dear friends, and welcome to the Painting Pictures Podcast. I'm Gabriel Roberts, and I'm recording this back in suburban Sacramento, California, where the Painting Pictures Podcast began about a year ago. At least that's when I started recording conversations and trying to get myself into the mindset of actually putting this out there. So thank you to all of you that have been along for this journey on the red airplane of desire. It's been fun for me, and I'm really excited about doing a lot more of this in in 2015. Happy New Year. Happy 2015. It's been a little while. It's been a dark winter. I hope you're staying warm out there. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're taking time to rest. Boy, I sure have needed rest. I've probably been averaging about nine and a half hours of sleep over the past month and probably averaging 20 minutes of napping a day. And that's with some days where I don't nap and some where I've taken solid two-hour logs, log snap nap daps. Those those are good. Those are real good. I've been dreaming up a storm. Last night I dreamt that I was involved in a military operation. Uh, I was involved on both sides. At one point I was brandishing a, an M16 assault rifle and trying to put a mother and her child out of their misery because they were going to die a painful death. But my gun misfired. So that's that's really, really intense, now that I think about it. Uh, the dream was more lighthearted. There was a scene, I, I was defending this house and with my brother, Miles, and there was a huge army coming, uh, but the, 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 the battle was to be fought um, as gentlemen fight a battle. The army arrived, and they were a little early, and so they were sort of uh, passing the evening playing cards in the basement of of the house that, that, that I was defending and they had come to raid. And I knew all of them and they all knew me. And I, I went down and said hello and exchanged pleasantries and never got to the actual battle. But I remember Miles, my brother, telling me uh, about where to station our tanks. We had a few tanks with big guns that we were going to station up the hill. Oh boy, I think this comes from uh, talk of the Vietnam War. There's a book called Matterhorn that my brother found and read and my parents both read recently and it details the Vietnam War. I haven't even gotten into it and I'm dreaming about it. I may read that book. I don't know. It's uh, I guess if you need to know the how bad Vietnam was. Um, it seems like this is a good book to read. I have a vague sense of how bad it was. And maybe I'll, I'll, um, you know, these are the kind of things you can take on in the winter time. <laughs> you know, spring and summer, you've got gardens to plant and to tend and potlucks to attend. In the winter time, you can learn about how awful historical events were. A little bit of education, you know, that's an important piece of education. I don't know if that's what I'll take on 
but I might. I just might. I've withdrawn from Paonia, Colorado, temporarily. I plan to return uh, within a matter of weeks, and I'm very excited about that. But I came back for the holidays and proceeded to get really sick, which prompted me to withdraw from commitments I'd made, work commitments for the beginning of the year for January. I had this plan of, you know, coming back for a week and then taking the train back and getting back on New Year's Eve, blah, 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 blah. Basically, I've been laid out. You can tell I'm still a little bit congested, and I'm going to continue complaining about this congestion for as long as it takes for it to go away. But I am feeling better. I have rested a lot. My cough is getting better. Uh, I, I'm understand, I understand that I'm not the only person in the world that is dealing with sort of lingering illness this winter. And so we can always look back on the winter of 2014-2015 as the winter of the Great Congestion. It's interesting that winter... Does winter... What what year does winter get ascribed to? Both years, I guess. The only season that bridges the year gap. Because the, the year change of years occurs in the wintertime. You see. I suppose technically it's more heavily loaded on to the new year. This is winter 2015 because winter only begins with, what, nine days or ten days left in December? But, of course, we kind of associate winter with Christmas. I don't know. This is neither here nor there. (laughs) Well, it is here. It's here and it's in your ears. And now you're thinking about it. And if you're like me, you'll, you'll probably think about it some more. So I'm back here in in the old seat of the the cradle of the grave, the seat of the Roberts clan. Our sigil is the flying leprechaun, and we're flying it proudly, praying for rain as always. It's another dry winter. Um. So yeah, it's been tough, you know, uh, shutting down, shutting, shutting things down. But fortunately I can do that. Fortunately, I don't have children or, um, you know, real strong, heavy commitments that I can't just, you know, people depending upon me, depending on me. This, this, this is the closest thing I have to people depending on me. That's, that's you, dear listener. I know that for your mental health, you need a a biweekly dose of blabbering. Uh, but other than that, I was able to really just pull out without too many ramifications. And fortunately, my rent is not so high that I uh, can't justify taking time away from Paonia. And uh, I'm grateful to have a couch here that I can lie on and a big TV I can watch movies on. been watching a lot of movies. It's kind of the ritual. Suburban fucking suburban Sacramento all around people are just waiting until that six o'clock hour when they can plop on down in front of the TV I mean fortunately in our family it's a healthy healthier habit than just plunking down with cable TV from 3 p.m. onwards or whatever at least it's sort of a there's some intentionality behind it because you actually have to choose something to watch and uh, and generally it's you know a single thing um, but I'm, I'm really trying not to let these days rush by 
like they did in the last time I was here, which was a year ago. I was here um, f- for quite a long time, all, you know, September through June. I was here, and boy, did that time rush by. And I do remember um, almost looking forward to the day having passed so that it would be time to do the dinner and movie. And you do the dinner and movie every night, and there you go. You're you're fed, you're occupied with the kitchen. You know, thank God for dishes. Thank God we don't have servants here. I don't know what the hell I'd do with myself. But um, so trying to stay present with these days, I'm meditating a little bit, which is nice. I've been reading about spirituality, and everything seems to point to the idea that we are more than this little person on this little planet, and that we are part of of the greater everything. And meditation is is a great way to access that everything and and understand our our true nature and disconnect briefly from our small self here um, and that if you can do that then you can you know get stronger and poop better basically that's what we're after is better poops I don't know yeah a little meditation a lot of reading a, a bit of writing uh, some eating the huge I, I'm gradually feeling like I'm ready to rejoin the land of the living and call up my friends that are around here and goodness, but it it is easy to just retreat and it has felt so good to just hole up and not talk to anybody and have nobody know where I am or that I'm here. It's weird. It's a little time warp, but I know that that there's going to be an explosion this spring and summer and fall in Paonia and uh, it's going to be madness and it's going to be nonstop. And so I'm, I'm trying to savor this time of stillness and use it to prepare myself for what's coming. Well, so I have a podcast here to share with you. This is a conversation recorded over a month ago when I was in Paonia and dealing with severe bronchitis. And I recorded this conversation via Skype with John Kleimenhaga, who lives in Santa Barbara, is an old friend of Naropa Sabine, who was on this podcast some time ago. He's a musician, he's a writer, he's an actor, he's a man of many facets, and we only really got to explore one, and that was primarily um, the story of John out of college managing and being the sound man for a reggae band based in Santa Barbara. He currently resides in Santa Barbara, but he's moving to Paonia soon. Um, I read his book. It's called Nevermind, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, And I was inspired to record a podcast, and we talked about the book a little bit. John actually found me through the podcast. So this is a podcast about the podcast, kind of. It's 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 like doubling back on a podcast connection and, and like double looping it, just really getting in there and threading it through one more time. I hope you like it and, you know, just sit on back and listen to this conversation. Sound quality is not primo. Thanks to uh, us not being in the same place at the same time. 
But it is what it is, and I'm grateful you're here for the ride or whatever. If you have any questions uh, for me or for John, send an email to Gabe Roberts Art at gmail.com. G-A-B-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-S at gmail.com. And the website for me and the podcast is GabeRobertsArt.com. All right, Cheerio fans, get in there. Get in there, settle on down, wiggle those buttons into place, and... (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea. Clean your room. This is a great thing to do if you're looking for something to do while listening to this podcast. Clean your room. I clean my room in preparation for the house cleaners. It's amazing how much work house cleaners can get you to do for them. Just with the uh, <laughs> the knowledge of their impending presence, the occupants of houses across America are sent scurrying to pick up their shit so that the house cleaners can clean. And I picked up my whole room so that they could clean in here, and, and all they did was vacuum and, and, and rub whatever this scented cleaning product that they use throughout the house over a, f- a few surfaces. But it feels fantastic. And, uh, boy, some clear surfaces, some clear surfaces, people. You know what they say, a clear desk is a clear mind, is a clear body, is a clear soul, is a nice green stripe of potato polish. So take that in, um, work with it, see what you think, send it back to me, I'll email it to my mom, she'll grasshopper over it a couple times, staple it, swirl it around, freeze it, in a couple weeks we'll take it out and see what we got. Alright, John Kleimenhaga, ladies and gentlemen. have a plan or are we just gonna go uh i have i have a little bit of a plan it's nice good good i was kind of imagining that uh it would just be audio because sometimes the connection is not good enough but it's nice right right we can see each other's faces i feel like that helps yeah definitely definitely so it's it's nice to meet you i've never this is the closest we've come to meeting yeah yeah likewise i've heard your voice and you i guess you heard my voice briefly too Uh uh-huh yeah, so I thought we we could start by just telling people the story of how we met or how this all came to be. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we could start from your end. Well, I it started with me because I was trying to find the rope of Sabah. Uh-huh. Uh, and what kind of prompted that was I got out a DVD of a play that I did back in 2000. Okay. Uh, self-written and self-produced, and I was collaborating with Neuro at the time, and he was cast in the play, and so was I, and so 
I had a DVD of it and I got it out and I watched it and uh, I was reminded how much, you know, I liked Milwaukee. And, cool. Uh, and I knew that I was going to be going up to the Bay Area for several weeks to take care of my mom. Right. And I was wondering what I was going to do in my off time there. And I thought, I think it's up in the Bay Area. I'd like to hook up with him. Okay. So, uh, but I had lost touch with him. Yeah. So I Googled it. <laughs> and uh, your podcast came up. I thought, oh, so actually hear his voice. And dialed uh, it up and pressed play and... Uh, I loved it. It was highly entertaining. Cool. And thus discovered that he had found his way to Paonia. Yeah, yeah. A place that he has roots, of course. But yeah, he found his yeah. way back. Which I, I had no idea. I, mean, okay. I knew a little about his history, but I had never heard about Paonia before. Yeah. And so... So then you, know, you sent me an email. And yeah, in effort to try to get in touch with Naropa, but also I, I enjoyed the podcast so much. I subscribed to the podcast and oh, listened to some of the other ones. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and in one of them, you prompted <laughs> us, the listener, to send back an audio file. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm going to do that. And I pressed pause and got my thing and sent back my, uh, my little response to your. Uh, yeah. You told me Weary. about a fateful night, uh, a travel, a traveling nightmare. That's right. That's right. You I ended mean, up urinating on the side of an apartment <laughs> building in Hollywood at five in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And getting yeah. caught. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a oh, oh man. Yeah. Epic. Right. So then, um, then you were talking about visiting Paonia, and yeah. Coincidentally, I was going to take a vacation before I went up to see my mom, and I was trying to decide where I wanted to go. Um, And one of my favorite things to do is to go see live music somewhere. Sure. And so Lucinda Williams was on my bucket list, and I saw that she was playing in Denver. Right. And right around the time I wanted to take a vacation, never been to Denver always wanted to see Lucinda and yeah. then I heard the Ropa was in Colorado and so I'm like perfect yeah. kismet yeah. I'm going to go to Denver and see Lucinda and check out Paonia which sounded awesome <laughs> in the podcast because I'm trying to figure out you know the next stage of my life and, and I'm exploring cool. different kind of environments and so cool. it turned out awesome yeah yes but you only got you got just like a day or Two days, something like that? Yeah, it was a brief... Did you rent a car in Denver and do the drive over? Yep, yep. Nice. And That's coincidentally, pretty... you know, when I was coordinating that, you had moved there at the same time and kindly offered your, your, your place to stay. So, yeah. Uh, but we didn't get to meet because no, I, you were... No, I left town the day before you arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and the rope arrived the day that I left. Really? So, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. called me, and I was in the Denver airport oh my God. on my flight, and I'm like, ah, oh, I just missed you. Oh, and, that's uh, so funny. It was good to actually talk to him and catch cool. up. And, yep. And I was bummed that I missed him, but I got a taste of Paonia. Right. And it was, you know, I got to meet your roommate, Brody. Yep. And a very interested, interesting guy. And uh, Cool. So, uh, I'll be back. Good. Yeah, well, I think it's great that you made the trip out and just get such a kick out of 
knowing uh, knowing that you were staying there, and then and then um, and then you left you left numerous gifts for us, including some of your books. And I think right. you had mentioned in your email that you had that you had written a book, and um, and then I got back and set. I got back. And I, I pretty much got hurt right after I got back. So I started doing a lot of reading, and your book was like the first thing I, I started into. Was never mind, awesome. and it totally hit like perfect timing for me because it's all about art and it's about. I, I identified with the the main character and the, like that particular sort of almost secretive, selfish passion for art where it's for you. Yeah. Yeah. You really picked up on the theme of it. Yeah. And that's what I really want in my art these days is I've, I think I spent a little bit of time after school when I like decided I'm going to be an artist, uh, kind of externalizing or trying to project my art a lot and, trying to sell it and trying to get shows and all of that took takes away from it. And the, I think the important thing to keep track of is, is what you're doing for yourself, why you're really doing it. Um, and, and then, and this guy, this character in the book then experience gets all sorts of success, of course. Um, right. And he derives pretty much no satisfaction from that. In fact, it kind of, he doesn't know how to handle it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I really, yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed the book, and I was like, I, I was just kind of humbled. I was like, holy shit, this guy's like a brilliant writer, and he was just staying in my, my tiny little room on my little futon. <laughs> <laughs> what a kick. Yeah, yeah. So... You enjoyed the book. Yeah, I really did. At this point, I lost my connection with John. And the internets on my end were to blame, as it turns out. Uh, so unfortunately, there's about 10 minutes of conversation lost here. But John and I talked a little bit about um, being an artist and in his situation, working in uh, the music industry and always having the idea of finding time to get to his own art and never quite finding that time. And a little bit about his experience as um sound man for a reggae band but fortunately we get into that in the second half of our conversation which is coming your way now hello hello john sorry about that i think my internets are to blame yeah but i got Great internet where I'm at. So. What's that? I said I've got great internet. Where I'm at. <laughs> oh, you do, do you? Yeah, definitely. You've you've known it's me this whole time. Well, the internet is a vagary to begin with. So I mean, it's amazing that all of this works as well as it does. That's true. If you really know what goes on behind the scenes. So. Yeah. So. To continue on that idea of of success and searching for success and and thinking about it in terms of fulfillment for the artist, I think that it might be a problem of scale and that uh, what's really rewarding is the feeling. I mean, of course, like 
playing a huge show in a sold-out stadium has got to be incredible. Yeah. Um, there's something that's really powerful about um, recognition or confirmation or feedback from people, and maybe especially people in your community or people that you know, um, or it does, I guess it's any people that truly connect to your art, and that's maybe one of the things that provides fulfillment for an artist. And I think with, with mass media and the, the ability to potentially have that experience with people from all over the world or with a huge audience, I think that there's an idea of um, feedback on that level that people are chasing or that level of success and and that maybe what they miss is the um, what people before technology advanced very far had, which was just the feedback of the people around them that actually saw could see their shows or um, hear them play. Um, yeah, and and that yeah. So I I've, I've been thinking about. In, so you're saying that technology has kind of skewed that artistic process because it's made this other kind of pool of feedback so available that uh, yeah and people start kind of right skewed out the process yeah they start right out chasing that by like making sure that they're you know on twitter and have a great website and are you know posting their shit all over the place um, yeah yeah instead of just doing it and 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 putting it out in in your community like in a local setting right right and then but of course you know there's not always a, there's not a huge potential there like within your small like i'm thinking about here in paonia that's sort of a limited right. audience um but we've had some great Brody and I and our and our friend Chris have done a couple of of kind of improv comedy performances to crowds of like 40, 50 people, that kind of a thing, 30 people. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it's been like it's been like the highlight, the best time of my life, like and yeah. and there's a potential to be able to do that regularly, but you know, who knows how far it's not like it's being recorded and broadcast or being accessible to other people, but um yeah, maybe that's all right. Maybe that's yeah. That's interesting. That's, interesting. that's all I all I need. Yeah, because you know, I'm probably one of the last or near the last who came up in an era free internet. Right. So that time, that's what you did. You know, you found people in your area, clubs or you know, music is mostly nightclubs. Right. parties and you played for the local crowd and the whole aspiration of actually you know getting in touch with that wider audience yeah. is not even on the radar at that early stage and like right, I said, right. now it, it, it totally is it's like totally you know present for the artist who's just starting out so yeah and I think there's an idea that's put out there that that is that is true success and that if you don't have that, uh, it's like people that are actually around you will overlook you or, or not even pay attention to you until they see that you've reached that next level. And then they're like, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, I guess you're legitimate now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Yeah, yeah. That's up. been true kind of even back before the internet. Yeah, I guess so. Kind of I guess so. So what were you... People pigeonhole you, you know, they see you as a local artist, but as uh -huh. soon as you get any kind of recognition outside of the local arena, then suddenly they put you in a different pigeonhole. Right, right. Yeah, it's damned. It's people not having their own damned sense of taste or not believing... Yes, that yeah. ...that they can be their own judge of, of what is quality or... Or worthwhile. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. So, what were you, uh, what were you playing back in when you were playing shows at nightclubs and stuff? I don't even know. What I actually was. was front of house engineer. Okay. Um, and unusual in that way. I mean, I. That's when I came to California. That's what I did. I was, as a kid, I played everything: bass. I was lead singer in a band. Nice. Know, I was a, I was a horn player, so I played horn and trombone in a couple bands, but uh, I tried a couple different things, uh, but I was going to school and, and loved recorded music, and interestingly enough, you know, that was one of the things I loved about recorded music was its potential to reach out to such a wide audience. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. One of the things that I was frustrated with with theater is, like I told you, I was in 21 plays by the time I was 21. And, and the, one of the things that always struck me about those experiences was you spend all this time yeah. building this chemistry with your cast and building this product. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you, you stage it maybe a dozen times and then you all go your separate ways and you start all over again. Yeah, and it's like, and that's it. And that's, that's so much work and yeah, heartache. I mean, I mean, it would just be devastating at the end of those things. Wow. And, right. and, uh, and it's like, and that, but I started playing in bands, even in high school band, you know, we would build a repertoire and the chemistry and we could play pieces that we had worked on, you know, a couple, three years ago, we could pull them out and polish them up and play them again. Right. It's like, you know, you don't have that in theater. You don't have, and unless you have a theater troupe, which is a different thing. Uh -huh. So, you know, recorded music and, and, and ultimately, I felt like rock and roll was the ultimate theater. You know, you're doing live because yeah. you get all the pluses of the live thing. But you get the benefit of staying with the same group of people and building on that chemistry and all that work that you do. Right. And, and then you get the added benefit of being the recorded part of it. And then it has even more staying power. Right. And more reach. And so it just seemed like that was the ideal yeah. thing for me. Because reaching people, like you said, for me, the ultimate satisfaction is reaching people. Mm -hmm. Because I was so impacted by music. I mean, music really mm -hmm. had an impact on me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to impact people in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was in college, in graduate school at Bowling Green, Ohio, um, I was studying recording techniques. They had a music studio at their music school. That's why cool. I went because I wanted to learn that. And uh, had been collaborating with some local musicians who weren't students, um, and uh, a group formed this reggae band, band and was like instantly successful. It was really good. 
Awesome. And, uh, and, and in the reggae community, you know, the sound man is considered a vital part of the group. And one of the main uh, guys in the reggae band, his brother was in a well-established reggae band in Cleveland. And so he had kind of the fundamentals. He knew the culture and the mm -hmm. scene. And, uh, and they really wanted a sound man. Mm -hmm. And I was really good friends with their guitar player. And he was like, well, I know a guy who knows how to work the gear anyways. And mm -hmm. I was playing in bands and running the gear from on stage. And so they asked me if I would, you know, be their sound man. And they were cool. touring at the time. Uh, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that whole circuit. Huh. And I was just graduating college and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And so uh, nice. I said yes. And uh, I had a part of me, for a period there, I thought I was going to be an orchestral conductor because I had such hmm. good success at it. Hmm. I took conducting in undergraduate as part of my um, requirement and uh, enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, our final our final exam was to conduct a piece with the, the orchestra from the school, and I got a standing ovation from nice. the musicians. Wow. So um, my next semester, I became the assistant conductor for the uh, orchestra. Cool. Uh, and, and really enjoyed it, but uh, once again found out, you know, the conductor spent all of his time fundraising. He was trying to keep two uh, community orchestras, two or three community orchestras up and running. Oh, really? And, and, and he spent all his time fundraising, and uh, it was an expensive proposition to keep an orchestra. Um, yeah, I talk about an eight-piece band tried yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> 25 or something. 40 or 50, yeah. Holy shit, And yeah. so, you know, I conducted all the rehearsals, and then he came in and did one rehearsal before the show and conducted the performance. Oh. So. Interesting. But I kind of got an insight into what that was like, and I'm like, I don't know, and, and also found out that, you know, even at that time, which was, uh, you know, early 80s, uh, the orchestral situation in the United States was a crisis. Uh-huh. All scrambling to make ends meet. Uh-huh. Really afraid to take any chances. Oh, so God. every show was standard repertoire. Oh, God. You know, Beethoven, Brahms, <laughs> Tchaikovsky, you know, that's all they ever did. And uh -huh. I was really into avant-garde, um, atonal music. Cool. Yeah. And there was no audience for that, and there was no <laughs> way that the orchestra was going to do that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I decided, you know, rock and roll. I was punk rock, you know. I was a nice. extravagant punk rock, you know, like shows, and they were fun. There was really a good community for them going to do that. a very small town out in the middle of the yeah. So, uh, so that's how I got into yeah. being a sound man, right? Uh, and, and Which I is like I the guy that's maybe on a keyboard, maybe just on a soundboard, kind of bringing up and down the levels, and yeah, making the blend. And, yeah, you know, stand out in the audience with the soundboard and blend together all the microphones. Uh huh. And, you know, 
add sounds too. There's effects, uh-huh. reverb, and delay. Uh-huh. And, um, cool. So I was really good at that. And cool. I saw myself as kind of a modern day conductor. Sure, like yeah. What a conductor does. Yeah. Depends what is the lead and what is the background. So, uh, but I had an ear for it. I got a lot of positive response about uh, um, the way that I made it sound. And, and, and the musicians that I was working for, that brought me on board, really had an appreciation for the fact that they had no control over ultimately what was being presented to the audience. And that's why they wanted someone in there that they could trust. Because right. no matter what they did, if the guy running the gear right. just not good, you know, the audience had a bad experience. Right. Yeah, you don't really think about that. their people, yeah. So, uh, so they yeah. decide what to do after that summer. I joined them in May of 86 and I graduated in August of 86. I had to take a couple of times over the summer and they had all graduated at the same time too and Bowling Green was a very small, hick town really and uh-huh having tremendous success and uh, it's they were like we're going to move to Cleveland or Cincinnati and uh, I was like my plan was to come to California once I graduated okay Uh, and because I had gone to San Francisco that winter for New Year's Eve I had a friend who was in San Francisco nice so and just loved it and yeah I had spent some time in New York as an undergraduate and like the city, but was a little overwhelmed by New York City. And San Francisco seemed to me a, kind of a smaller version. Yeah. And, and I've seen some really interesting theater while I was there. Uh-huh. George Coates was doing some really interesting multimedia stuff. So. so I announced to them, you know, it's been fun, but I'm going to California. Mm-hmm. And uh, our lead singer said, well, my brother lives in Santa Barbara. And he said we would just dominate out there. So I'd like to go to California, too. Oh, so he brought the whole darn band out. <laughs> yeah. And wow. everyone in the band, one after another, said, I could go. <laughs> yes, I'll go. And I was like, oh, that'd be awesome. I'd have something to do when I get out there. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So, so we all decided to come to California together. Cool. Excuse me, just just a sec, John. Yells? Hello. 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 Oh, hi. Uh, it's not in here. Yeah. I'm uh my studio is the is the laundry room for this upstairs area. So that was somebody looking for a vacuum cleaner. Okay. <laughs> Small town existence, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful they, they squeezed me in here. It was not a uh it was, they were not planning on renting this space, oh. but my friend was renting an office up here and was like, you should just see if they'll get, let you move into the laundry room, and so they did. And that's where you do your painting? <laughs> that's where laundry. I do my painting, yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. So you guys all cruised out to California. Yeah, yeah. It was that's awesome. epic, epic adventure. Yes. So naive. Uh, yep. Because I was the recording graduate assistant, I had the keys to the studio, and we recorded an album, we put it out on cassette, 
and uh, we sold a couple hundred of them and saved two thousand dollars, and that was our travel budget. Nice for five of us. Um, we decided not to take. Well, our sax player didn't want to come out, and we decided not to bring our percussionist. This was kind of redundant. Five of us came out together, um, but you know that was. <laughs> In Bowling Green, Ohio, we were renting a five-bedroom house for two hundred fifty dollars a month. Uh-huh. So uh, we didn't even think what it would be different. We were so naive, and we landed in Santa Barbara. And our lead singer's brother, who he didn't really know, he had lost touch with. He was like ten years older than him, and, and lost communication with him just recently. So I'm in touch with him. Uh, come to find out that he's like a hardcore Rastafarian. Oh, wow. Uh, and virtually homeless. <laughs> has, has a bicycle and like two pairs of shorts <laughs> and a drum. And that's all. Because in Santa Barbara, you don't need much. You know, it's never below 60. That's right. It's a great place to be homeless. Yeah, yeah. And But our lead singer didn't tell us that. So he said, yeah, we'll just stay with my brother, assuming his brother had a place. Oh, shit. But his brother did not have a place. <laughs> so he would crash with his <coughs> who was staying with her mother in public housing oh my god two three bedroom apartment uh, that they had about 15 people staying um, you know there was a married couple sleeping in a pup tent on the back of the so, yeah but they were so gracious they took us in cool let us sleep on the floor, and within uh-huh. a couple of days, we made some connections. He, at least his brother, knew a guy who had a small community theater, and he let us sleep in the theater at night. You know, nice. we had to sneak in because people weren't supposed to sleep there. We had to be out, you know, by six a.m. because oh, business start coming in. So, yeah, living so, life on the edge. Yeah, totally. Good I for mean, you. I, and we were, and he, he was just connecting with his brother. Uh-huh. So that's really what his focus was. Uh-huh. And, um, actually, at that time, only four of us came out on the first wave. Uh, bass player's girlfriend moved to San Francisco at the same time to be part of the whole thing. So we went up to San Francisco to stay with her. Mm-hmm. And me and the guitar player and the lead singer were kind of in Santa Barbara trying to find a place to live with $2,000. Uh, and but and a dream. Of lead singer, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the $2,000 was in a wadded up, crumpled up piece of paper that was a cashier's check that our lead singer had put in his fanny pack on the way out. And... Uh, he was interested in getting in touch with his brother, who was a hardcore Rastafarian, and their whole plan was we would go up to the power points in the hills above Santa Barbara. They had these points in the mountains that they said were power points, and we would pray. We would envision this place, and the huh. Rastafarian community there saw our coming as kind of a sign that there was going to be this reggae scene in Santa Barbara that was going to explode. Yeah. We were going to find a house that was going to be the center of the reggae scene in Santa wow. Barbara. 
and a bunch of people were going to live there, and it was going to be this whole cultural, artistic thing. And the way that we were going to find it was we're going to burn sage up at the power points in the mountain and envision it. Yeah. It would come. Yeah. And uh, we did that for about a week. (laughs) And then uh, me and the guitar player started cracking jokes about how stupid that was. And and they kicked us out. (laughs) 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 We were punk rockers. That was one of the things about our band. We had this whole eclectic thing. Our drummer and trombone player were jazz guys and... Me and the guitar player were punk rockers, and, and the lead singer and the bass player were reggae guys, and, and we did this kind of amalgam. Yeah. Old from all genres. But, so they kicked us out for not being positive. <laughs> and, uh, so we would sit on the beach and look through the paper and say, okay, we got $2,000. What can we afford? We can't afford a five-bedroom. We can't afford a four-bedroom. We can afford maybe a two-bedroom. Mm-hmm. And we can get one month, that $2,000 they'll give us for one month. And then uh, 30 days later, we're going to need to come up with rent again. We're yeah. going to spend a whole nut yeah. um, just getting in the door. Yeah. Um, and it was dire. It, it took us, I mean, we got a place the day before Thanksgiving. We convinced a guy to let us rent this house that, where the garage had been converted into a one-bedroom apartment. Okay. Lead singer's brother was going to take the one-bedroom apartment with his girlfriend, and the band was going to have the house. Yeah. And, um, but because the money we had was in this crumpled-up wad of paper, we couldn't get it cashed. So eventually, we convinced the lead singer to let me take over the reins of managing the whole endeavor and I took the cashier's check to my bank, Wells Fargo, and you know had and tried to deposit it. And the teller said no, and asked to speak to her manager, and he said no, and asked to speak to his manager, and said, "Listen, I know it's good, I won't draw on it." And he said, "Okay, but it's going to take two weeks to clear." And I said, "Fine, I won't touch it. I know it's good." Yeah. And so you know we showed the, the management company the. My deposit receipt said uh-huh. this will be available uh-huh. in a couple of weeks and this will be our deposit for this house. And he's like, okay, as long as, you know, you guys promise, is not going to be no you know, party raging thing? Of course not. Yeah, yeah. We're like, yeah, we're cool. As long, and he's like, as long as the woman next door doesn't have a problem with you, then it should be cool. I'm like, okay, we're cool, you know, it'll be nice. And so we get in the house, we're like, Awesome. We get up the next morning. There's an orange tree in the front yard, sitting on the front porch. I mean, we've got like hunting knives in place we're all in camping mode, and we're cutting up oranges. So this is awesome. And an ambulance pulls up, <laughs> and they haul the woman next door out. Stretch. She's had a heart attack. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my god! And the and the management company guy shows up an hour later and says, "You guys are out." You guys are out. And we're like, no, no, we have an agreement. He's like, we never got any money from you. You're out. Oh, and shit. Discussion. And so we got booted out. Uh, Did he think that you gave her the heart attack? Uh, I don't know. I'm yeah. just saying that's the sequence of events. Yep. <laughs> you had one night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we're back to the drawing board. And, Jesus. Uh, um, 
you know, started going around again, so naive. I literally show up at places and say, yeah, we're a bunch of musicians who've come to California to make it. <laughs> literally, people slam the door in my face. All right, it's the last I, type of person you want to rent to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was... <clears throat> but eventually, we got a place. It's funny, because we got down, you know, it was now December, like, 10th. And uh, we had been there for six weeks. And, you know, and we were like, hey, we need to go bottom line here. We just need to get a place, mm-hmm. however fact it is. And we made a list. And the first place we looked at, we were like, God, that place is just a shack. I mean, it is barely standing. Uh, if we can't get that place, then we're done. And, uh, there was a probably 10 more places on the list, and that was that one shack was the only place where the landlord said that we could live, would actually let us get, and we got it. So, nice. December 11th, we moved into this shack. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, fairly livable. Uh, yeah. But it, it was our foot in the door, and uh, so. We started playing live, and guys got jobs. And That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. You made and, it happen. Yeah, made it happen. And uh, within a year, we were like the most popular band in Santa Barbara. Wow. What was the name of the band? Crucial DBC. Crucial DBC? Yeah, Red Broadcast Corporation. <laughs> nice. And, uh, company, Red Broadcast so yeah from there I mean we spent that was 1986 mm-hmm. and we played our last show in June of 92 wow so that's a pretty good run yeah we did three more records um, like I said we were able to buy two vans and a PA system and produced all the records. Our whole mode was that any money that we made, half of it would go into the band fund and the other half would get split up amongst the musicians. Nice. Uh, that worked out well. Yeah. Um, did what we needed fun. I got paid extra to manage the group. I became the manager. Good for you. Sound man and, you know, established reputation in town as the manager. You know, at that time... Nobody had really made a real kind of professional go of it. And uh, mm. as far as selling self-produced recordings and stuff like that, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember when I first went into the local record store, I was like, yeah, we're a local band, I want to sell the sets here. Uh, the guy was like, no, local product doesn't sell. Local products doesn't sell? Yeah, it doesn't sell. And, and I was like, well... We're doing a lot of shows and people are interested. And I, I just want to leave. You know, let me just leave ten here, and I'll be back in a month. And if they don't sell, I'll take them back. Yeah. And, uh, I went back a month later, and I was like, I don't see any of our product out on the floor. I, I want to get paid for it and, and give you more. Yeah. And he's like, Oh no, no, it's probably back in the store. Let me go. And he went back there, and he's like, I can't find it. Like. I sold it. I talked to a couple people who said they bought it here. <laughs> you kidding? 
Is he in, sold out ten of them. He couldn't believe it. He's yeah, give me ten more. Yeah, give me ten more. And you know, a couple weeks later, those are all sold. Cool. Amazing. The first time you ever had a local artist sell product out of a store. So yeah, yeah. So you know, it was going well. I mean, we built ourselves up, and we're playing all over California and Arizona. Cool. Playing, you know, opening up for Ziggy Marley in front of like four thousand people. Nice. You and getting our product. We were getting airplay all over Europe. And cool. We were getting you know fan mail from all over the world. Um, oh, that's but great. But could not make. And me, we did a hundred shows a year for five years. Whoa! And yes, that's a lot of shows, man. Yeah, we were busy. Yeah. And uh, but guys still had day jobs. I was the only one who didn't have a day job. I managed the band. Right. I got paid uh, three hundred dollars a month to manage the band. Wow. Which covered my rent. Yeah. I was able to find a place in Santa Barbara at that time for three hundred dollars a month. Right. Well, that's quite an experience. Yeah. But that is the basis for the book Nevermind, because right at the end of that is um, when I started thinking about, you know, what does it take to be an artist? And you know and I read John Cocteau's Opium, where he talks about how artists, in, at the turn of the century France, he compared artists to opium addicts and criminals. He said, you know, they're all treated the same way in society. And, and I found that very interesting. And in Nevermind, my, my first page is a quote from that book um, about... The state of being an artist. Ah, uh, yep. Maybe we should. I should read it for your listeners so that they, they know what I'm talking about. Yeah, have you got it there? Yeah. This was like one chapter in Opium by Jean Cocteau. I mean, that was his style. He did very short things and he had little drawings and mm. it was kind of a journal. He wrote it when he was in a sanitarium, uh, recovering. <laughs> From opium addiction. Oh, wow. This is one of his chapters. It says, Strange lack of Christian sex through the existence of a spiritual progeny. Progeny is like offspring? Child, yeah. Child, yeah. He says, Art is born of coitus between the male and female elements of which we are all composed, and they are more balanced in the case of artists than of other men. It results from a kind of incest, a love of self for self, parthenogenesis, which is self-generating. Hmm. He says, it is this that makes marriage so dangerous among artists, for whom it represents a pleonasm, a monstrous effort towards the north. Hmm. He says, the poor specimen look, which is the mark of so many men of genius arises from the fact that the creative instinct is satisfied elsewhere and leaves sexual pleasure free to exert itself in the pure domain of aesthetics, inclining it also towards unfruitful forms of expression. 
creative and that, instinct that, is satisfied elsewhere and leaves sexual pleasure free to exert itself in the pure domain of aesthetics. Whereas in non-artists, the creative instinct is satisfied through sex? Well, my interpretation of that was that in, yeah, in non-artists, I guess is the way to put it, the creative instinct drives them more towards this procreative, mm. settle down, mm. raise family thing. Mm -hmm. I do in that direction. Mm -hmm. Whereas an artist has his progeny. And uh, so doesn't need to have children. Right. That kind of fulfillment. So, but still has the sexual drive. Right. And so they are slanderers and <laughs> drug addicts. You know, they're all about pleasure and experience. Uh, and, and, and sex for them is not about procreation. Uh, it lacks that sort of grounding element. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, huh. because we all have that need to procreate, but for artists, it's fulfilled in the creation of our artists. That's art. And so we don't have that need to have kids. It just doesn't drive us in Holy shit, I never, I, sh I should have, well, that makes the whole book, uh... Which is where I was sense. at. And the reason why it spoke to me was because I was single and kind of lonely. Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, and looking around, and that whole yeah. settling down and having kids thing was terrifying. Yeah. I had no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. And I was like, you know, what is that? I just don't understand it at all. So, and yeah. then I read this, and I'm like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, at the time, I was very prolific in college, wrote a bunch of music and did plays and music videos and films. And I was still doing that, even with the band. We were producing records, and I was writing short stories, and I was doing music videos for other groups. And, and I was getting my, you know, getting my, uh, my progeny mm -hmm. was doing all the time. I had mm -hmm. all kinds of kids out there. Mm -hmm. So, and interestingly enough, this subtitle of the book is The Last Temptation of Frank. Um, at the same time that I read Opium by Cocteau, I saw The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's version of it. Okay. Um, and it prompted me to read the book. Xanthesis, Nikos Xanthesis wrote the book last book. Oh, okay. Uh, Scorsese's film is really closely uh, adapted from the book. Okay, I didn't know it's that. It's good. Uh, but in that, you know, the, it was a revelation to me. I'm not much of a religious person, although I did explore and read the Bible and wondered about this way. But Xanthesis says that the last temptation of Christ was to lead a normal life uh, and have kids. Huh. Uh, and the devil presents this to him when he's on the cross. It says, I can make this all go away. You can have a wife and kids and it'll all go away. And and Christ is tempted but ultimately denies it and says, no, that is not my destiny. Mm -hmm. to die on the cross. Mm -hmm. And he becomes what he has become. And 
you know, so I was struck. Here is another figure who is renouncing this settle down, mm-hmm. have married, you know, get married and have kids life. And, mm-hmm. and so it struck me as parallel, as mm-hmm. parallelism there. And, and, that, and that's when I started writing this book. Cool. Write a book about what being an artist is like. Yeah. Yeah, sort of making that, making that decision to, um, there's, there's almost a, uh, it seems like something of a, of a relaxation, um, that's offered in the settling down and having kids. I mean, it's something I definitely, I definitely want, but I'm, uh, and it's not like, I have that opportunity right there and that, you know, all of my problems would be over if I just put down my paintbrush and <laughs> decided to have a family. But right. I do feel kind of, um, I mean, maybe having a family is, uh, or, or the idea of settling down can be associated more with generally um, stopping a, some kind of a, a pushing, a pushing the envelope or exploring or kind of like an end to that phase and sort of like accepting, okay, I've gone maybe as far as I need to go. And now I'm going to focus on creating a new life and kind of close the book on my own personal exploration. It's interesting how they do seem to be mutually exclusive. I mean, there are certainly plenty of creative people who have families. Yeah. not absolutely an exclusive thing, but there is definitely incompatibility. Yeah. So then, so Frank then, I don't want to spoil it too much, but he uh, he goes through a period of not producing art in that he, sl- he slowly kind of dies in a way. Or he loses touch with himself, and then he he sees the opportunity to have children, and that gives him gives him new life in a new way. Right, just that idea, just knowing that he has that option. It certainly, yeah, intrigues him. I mean, motivates him. Yeah. Um, so, Frank is accepts the the bargain with the devil as the opportunity to renounce everything, right? Lead a normal life, right? Accepts it, right? So, <laughs> mine is kind of the what if, you know, the the other path was taken from in, in the last temptation of Christ. In the Christ story, he renounces the temptation, and we see what happened to him. And this story, Alfred accepts it, and we see. Yeah. That, if that choice was So there's one, um, there's a, a topic that we can talk about without um, going into too much detail into the book, which is uh, the idea the character Frank draws energy from the the hum of New York City. Yeah, yeah. And he and you describe it 
that he in his childhood um, did it, got it from nature, from Gaia, that he would go yeah. and commune. Uh, I'm just going to read this, just, just this little quote. Unfortunately, as a child, you're usually not aware of the value of life energy, and if you are, the subtleties of its origin and its effects do not connect. And I don't, I don't remember exactly if he, how aware he was of it as a child, but he's certainly looking back as an adult saw that he was um, basically when he uh, th- he was just just going out and and connecting to the earth and drawing life energy. Yeah, yeah. And then he starts to do it um, from the city. And I always think that's that's interesting that this character does it both ways. I, I kind of think that um, I've seen uh, what I think are some people that are kind of naturally disposed to one or the other. I think for me, I'm I, I, I get more energy. I'm more able to draw energy from nature and stillness. But I definitely know people that like thrive in urban environments and no doubt are just fed by the the constant like activity of the city yeah how about how about yourself well that very much comes from my own experience i grew up um, when i from the time i was five to uh, 11 out in the country mm-hmm. I spent most of my time out in the wilderness Whereabouts? This was upstate New York, outside of Rochester, New York. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then when I turned 11, we moved into a small town, but we were in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So it was not the city. Mm-hmm. But when I first went to college, I went to school in New York, uh, out on Long Island. Okay. Um, but my roommate at the time had an apartment in Queens, and so we would go into Queens often. Cool. And that was kind of my first experience of city life. Yeah. And I found the same thing. That experience that I talk about with Frank very much comes from autobiography. The experience I, of drawing that drawing that energy from, from the city. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere. I can get that energy anywhere. If I let it happen. Is kind of one of the things I was trying to point out. Cool. Seems like basic mechanisms, cultural thing or whatever, kind of teach us to block it out. Right. I actually kind of have, it's a a meditative thing. I I found recently when I started studying Eastern philosophy. Uh Uh-huh. It's all. It's about letting go and emptying your, your mind, and not trying to connect to it, uh-huh. stopping to try, and it comes to you, sort of naturally. Yeah, yeah. And so it's something that I do to this day. I just get to a place where I can just kind of stop trying, mm-hmm. and, and I feel this connectedness, but only. Only when I stop trying, you know, I really feel it. <laughs> In the middle of everything, I feel so much of myself. Mm. As soon as I kind of let go of myself, uh-huh. 
I connected this to the larger thing, whatever it is, it becomes more apparent. Yeah, man. That's great. Yeah. Because there's a lot out there sort of floating around. Oh, my God. Available. Astounding. And I really think people don't do it. It has been an interesting thing. You know, I started practicing yoga um, ten years ago. Uh I was encouraged by a coworker to do it, to go to a gym and do it. And it was, you know, mainly for exercise. Mm -hmm. It's it's widely touted as an exercise regime here in the West. And I was very fortunate and had, we did this, I went to this class where the teacher was a practitioner of Ashtanga yoga, which is a flow yoga. Mm-hmm. So you don't hold poses for very long mm-hmm. and you're kind of fluidly moving through yeah. these poses yeah, and breathing. Like and, yeah, and she was great at calling it out, not saying too much. Mm-hmm. And I found I got into this really meditative state. Mm-hmm. When, when I was doing it, and uh, and it wasn't until relatively recently, a couple of years ago, that I found out that you know the Hindu practice of yoga. That's exactly what it's about. It's not about exercise. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a religious practice. It's a, it's a method for letting go of your body and mm-hmm. letting you know emptying your mind. It's mm-hmm. a way to empty your mind. Going through these poses was a way to get to that meditative state. Mm. But nobody here in the West talks about yoga as that being that that's what it's about. It's all about stretching and muscle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the furthest thing from, from the Hindu practice of it. But that's my point is that Western culture, it just so self-involved, <laughs> they have such a hard time really plugging into the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the so answers supposedly desperate. lie in your own crafting your own perfect little story. If you can just get the right partner and the right job, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kinds of things. I mean, even I, I hate you know, Christianity. It has become about self-examination, self-flagellation. And it's not about just letting go of yourself. Allowing yourself to be connected to everything else. Yeah, and allowing yourself to be less than perfect, to be childish and yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I like that you. Uh, I like that you just dropped that straight into this into this book. This character did that. I can't remember if he does it in the end. Does he lose track of that kind of practice, or he finds it again when he goes back to New York near the end? Huh. That's a good question. I don't recall. I don't it does seem like in book two, which is about the after he doesn't talk much about it. no definitely not yeah yeah 
yeah, it's an important thing to uh, important thing to keep track of. So you do, you do get some good uh, you must get some good vibes from the ocean uh, down there in in Santa. Oh Florida. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I try to get out there often. Yeah, although I rarely go in it. Yeah, but <laughs> I sometimes definitely love being by it. Yeah, yeah, sometimes that's enough. I haven't climbed any of these mountains really, but. I look at them every day. Right, right. And it's pretty sweet coming from, boy, it beats the hell out of Sacramento in that regard, having that uh, just immense presence of nature so it's apparent. Amazing. I mean, I was just in awe when I was out there. There was a couple times where I would like round a corner on the highway and I would have Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it's crazy. And now, what it was, it was just astounding. Yeah, yeah, really. And it really does force you to snap out of whatever little mind game you're playing with yourself at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least for a minute. Instant perspective, yeah. Yeah. Yes, if you open yourself up to it. So I definitely like that about that area. Yeah, so you're thinking um, you're thinking that you may be maybe doing some more roaming in the in the near future. Yeah, yeah. Ready for a little change, change of environment. Totally ready. Cool. Um, but yeah, no idea. Yeah. So I need to do some exploring. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've uh, you've got your hands full for the for the rest of this year and. And enough to enough to focus on. Yep. For now, yep. and we've got the solstice uh, this weekend. Ah, the longest night of the year, I believe, is tonight. Hi. Actually, is it tonight? I think it is. It's either it's tonight okay. or tomorrow night. I thought it was more like the twenty second. Oh, I guess we're near that. Yeah, it's about the twenty first. Yeah, it's creeping along. Awesome. Good to know. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably wrap this one up, but we got to do it again. Sure, yeah. Totally. There's a lot more to, to discuss. I'm wondering if it would be possible to do more than two people. Would that be even practicable? Or It, it sounds interesting to me, but... Uh, I've never done more of a round table. Would be, I've never heard anyone actually do that. All these, you know... Podcasts are just yeah, one it's or usually the one on one. No, I think yeah. I think three is super fun. Um, we could probably. I've never tried a. Th well, I've done three or four way calls on Skype. If everyone has good internet, it can definitely work. Um, or we could try two uh, two in in one, you know, two in one physical spot and the third remotely. Yeah. I don't know why that just thought just came to my head. But, uh, well, we could get we should get Naropa. We should get Naropa in. That would be fun. Yeah, yeah. Although he's he's adult now. He's he'll, he's his brain will never be the same. <laughs> I don't know. He sounded pretty on point in the podcast <laughs> he did with you. He said a bunch of interesting stuff. Well, he hurt he hurt his little head surfing in California. Oh right, right. Yeah. That's head. No, I've seen him. I, he's still got. He's still got the, those little gray cells are still functioning, I think. 
Good, good. <laughs> yeah. I need to reach out to him again. We didn't get to talk long when, when we did talk, but he was great. And we were working together in L.A. And cool. Yeah, I would love to. source of inspiration. It's a good time, man, putting on, um, putting on a show. A live show. I, something I never really, uh, I mean, I always, I always enjoyed live performances and whenever I would go to a live show, I would say that I needed to do it more. And I think that's how, I feel like 90% of population operates is that they don't go out of their way to find a live or attend a live performance, but when they do, they'll love it. Yeah. That's a good point. So there you go, listeners, go out find something in your area. Yeah, it's remarkable the energy of a crowd. Yeah. Even if it is a small crowd. Yeah, for sure. 40, 50 people. It's, it is remarkable. It is. Still, still just remarkable. Well, so I do it as often as I can. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, there's a pretty good... There's a pretty good scene. I never really got into it when I was in the Bay Area. I, I think that the the it, I was just kind of overwhelmed. I didn't know where to start. But I feel like here in Paonia, I'm, uh, there's not so many options. You know, there's only one thing happening at a, on, a, on any given night. So right. Everybody goes to the same thing, and and that works pretty well for. And you just have you know walk down the street, and it's just a few bucks. So I've been been seeing more uh, seeing more shows and participating more, which has been fun. Awesome. Well, well I'm, I will definitely be. I, I hope to make it out to Paonia again, maybe as soon as this spring or summer. Excellent, excellent. We'll keep the you know keep the creative vibes flowing here. Right so on. You can have some fun when you do. Yeah. Uh, happy well, Christmas, my friend. Thank you, you too. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. This is really great, and definitely uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Okay. Take care. Okay, you too. Adios, John. All right, everybody. That was John Kleimenhager. A big thank you to John for coming on the podcast. Hopefully next time we'll do it in person. Thanks to you for listening. If you have any questions, send me an email at gaberobertsart at gmail.com. And the website for the podcast is gaberobertsart.com. If you go there and check out the post for this episode, I'll have some links to John's books and the band Crucial DBC, for, uh, or of which I'm going to share a song now. This is the last song on their last album. It is called What's Next. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Until next time. <laughs>